Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hi listeners, Bryony here. Just a quick warning that there's some colourful language in this podcast, so it might not be one to listen to with children around. Right, now that's out of the way, I hope you enjoy the show. I had written from a place of trauma and personal loss and to take trauma and to turn it into a book or into any art for anybody, I think is one of the best things you can do. This week on Mad World, I'm thrilled to welcome a writer whose first novel was rejected by an astonishing 32 publishers. But thankfully for the reading public, someone eventually picked it up. And last year, it won the Booker Prize. Shuggy Bain, that book, traces the life of a young boy and his alcoholic mother in Glasgow. And it's inspired by the author's own upbringing. It's a portrait of addiction and all that comes with it and has been described as bleak. But for me, it's a book that is absolutely filled with love. And so I had to ask if he could come on the podcast. Please welcome to Mad World, the fantastic Douglas Stewart. Douglas Stewart, welcome to Mad World, all the way from New York. <laughs> Tell us, um, the question I start and I ask every guest from Prince Harry through to Stephen Fry through to mental health nurses is, how are you really right now? And I don't want any of that, I'm fine, I'm cool. Like, really, really, how are you feeling right now? You know, really, really, uh, I actually just went through a couple of weeks of extreme loneliness. I suddenly mm-hmm. felt I reached just the end of the line a little bit. So I was feeling incredibly lonely. And I think I'm now starting to feel, I've been talking to so many incredible people, especially after the Booker win, but it's all happening through this screen. And I'm I'm just starting to miss people. I was doing all right last year, but something about the new year is really starting to get to me. So you're in New York and you live with your husband. I do. Tell us what's it like in New York? Because obviously here in the UK, we're in lockdown. Is it similar there? It is, we are being incredibly cautious. It's not uh, actually a lockdown, but there's lots of little sort of rules and things that the city's put in effect. And the biggest thing really is all these businesses and restaurants that are only allowed to sort of operate under limited guidelines. And so the city itself is, you know, I have a lot of faith in New York. It's a very resilient and a bit relentless as a city, but the city without its vital energy feels very changed. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to things getting back to normal. A bit of connection. Bit of connection, yeah. And a bit of life on the streets. It doesn't feel like it's got a lot of life at the moment. Mm. So we are here to talk about your amazing 
debut novel, Shuggy Bane, which won the Booker Prize at the end of last year. It's a book that took you 12 years to write? Yeah, 10 to write and 12 to publish. Uh, You were turned down by how many publishers? (laughs) That's a way to start. start, start. (laughs) (laughs) They were like, you know, to give people hope. They're like publishers that must feel like like turning down the Beatles. (laughs) Well, that's kind of you to say. But yeah, when Shuggy was sent out to editors to be sort of, as every book is, to be published, my agent told me it was turned down 20 times and then she revealed uh, later it was 44, I think, is the oh number. God. So <laughs> she just stopped telling me after a while. Oh, but listen, you don't need... Well, I am going to say it anyway. It's the most incredible book. Obviously, it won the Booker Prize, you know, but it was really interesting because I as an alcoholic in recovery myself and I got sober when my daughter was, well, hopefully sober for the last time but when she was four, but... Reading it was, I thought, oh, is it going to be, is it going to be really grim? Is it going to be really harsh? And the thing that really surprised me about it was how it's like a love, it was almost like a love story between Shuggy and his mum, Agnes. And like the empathy, I don't think I've read a book that had such sort of compassion for the alcoholic mother, Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. The edition that I've got, I, I don't know if this is in all the editions, but there's a Shuggy is the boy and his mum is Agnes. And you write about why you called her Agnes. You named her after St Agnes in Agony. And you say, the novel is a tribute to St Agnes in Agony and also to all the mothers like my own who did the best they could and tried so hard to free themselves from the flames of the things that might destroy them. Mm. Which I was like, before I'd even started the book, I was sitting there going, oh my God. I felt <laughs> like even just reading that out to you now and I know our circumstances are all completely different, but I always feel with alcoholics there's that kind of central thing I don't know it was so beautiful I know this was you know it's loosely based on your own experiences growing up in Glasgow what did you want to sort of create with the book that's a great question you know I actually wanted to create something quite small and modest with the book I only wanted to write this love story between a mother and a son really the son's love for his mother And I think you can't set a book in 1980s Glasgow without pulling in so many other themes and and other social unrest issues. But uh, I grew up in Glasgow in the 80s and my mother suffered with alcoholism her my entire life. And, you know, my very first memories of her briny had drink in them. and, And then she actually died of her own addiction when I was 16. And so 30 years later, or almost 30 years later, I'm working on this book and And I think I write about it from a sense of loss and grief and waste. I mean, my mother was a brilliant, beautiful, generous, gregarious woman. She had so much potential. And so I just have always been left with such a sense of waste in my life and loss. And I think that's part of the reason why I wrote Shuggy, although it is a work of fiction. I have to say, I wouldn't want anyone to look at every scene and try and tie it back to my life. I do write from a feeling of what it is to lose the person you love most in the world and And funnily enough, addiction was in our house as a kid, but it was also all around us. Um, I think sometimes people who suffer with addiction feel like they're the only person suffering. And and I actually knew a lot of people. Part of that was through AA, but also part of it was just on the streets. You know, you could tell that there was especially mothers suffering all over and women disintegrating. Part of that was because men were allowed to drink as hard and as heavy as they liked. And we didn't ever judge them. And we didn't necessarily think of them as having a problem. But women... When they did that, it was very, very sort of obvious. And it, and, it, and it created a real feeling of isolation for my mother and for myself. 
The thing I you mentioned is that you say addiction was all around you. And mm-hmm. as you say, you're not, you say this isn't like scene for scene based on your own life. But there were a couple of things that made me, the, the, the brilliance of it was there was a scene where you write when Agnes has got this new man in her life, mm-hmm. Eugene, is it? And she's really happy. Mm-hmm. And Shuggy feels this pain because he feels he can't do for his mum what this new man and, you know, love could do for her. And I guess what alcohol does for her. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and that, that for me was such a powerful thing, you know, that I think that children of alcoholics have to experience mm-hmm. and go through. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, but the character of Shoggy, Agnes has been suffering with her addiction for about half of the book. And Shoggy, like many children of addicts, does everything he can in his power to look after his mother. He even does some things that are would hurt him, but he knows make her feel better. You know, he goes around and gathers up the the end of lager around the house just to make sure her hangover isn't as bad as it as it could be. And and in what I wanted to show is in many of these relationships, the parent-child sort of dynamic inverts. And Shuggy spends most of the book sort of caring for his mother, caring for her very physically, for her body, but also for her mental well-being and and trying to get her better and trying to make her feel well. And he has many tricks and strategies as children like us do, you know, to sort of keep your parents safe, to keep them happy, to keep them on an even keel. And, And there is certainly something about alcoholism that is so unpredictable that makes it exhausting. I think sometimes... You know, you never know what you're coming home to. First of all, whether your parent will be in the throes of addiction or not. But then what will it bring out in them? Will it bring out sadness? Will it bring out anger? Will it bring out the need for a party and a good time? Or And Shuggy just doesn't, doesn't know what he's coming home to most of the time. But halfway through the book, Agnes falls in love. And it's a beautiful love. She meets this really upstanding, fine Catholic man. And, and after being treated quite roughly by her, her, her husband, Eugene is everything Agnes hopes for. But... Agnes enters into this really glorious period of sobriety and Shuggy feels a little bereft by it in a funny way because here he has been loving his mother fiercely and he hasn't been able to sort of help her or fix her. And I think sometimes children of addicts feel like their parents' addiction is somehow their fault Mm -hmm. because they're not doing the right thing and they're not, you know, being the kid, you know, somehow it belongs with them. And of course it doesn't. But, but we can't help but feel that. And, and so Shuggy feels a little peeved that this man's managed to fix the thing he couldn't fix. Oh, it makes me just talking to you about it. I, I was thinking, I, it's interesting, my daughter now, and I, I always try and tell myself, she was too, hopefully she was too young to remember that period, that dark period. Mm-hmm. But still, I see in her, she, she does that thing of, she's like, are you okay, mom? Are you okay? And I think, and it's interesting even now, like three years, four years down the line, the, the thing I love about your book is is the empathy. Do you know what I mean? Because we do, as humans, fuck up. We we are complex. We are flawed. We are thrown into situations that are impossibly hard, such as you know the the poverty that you write about. Hmm. You know during Thatcher era in the eighties, and you know obviously that is going to come out in some way. And there is this compassion, and then there's this wonderful bit. This is the bit I want to read. It's the it's the upsides hmm. that you articulate of Agnes. So Shuggy is saying he can't dance. He doesn't know how to dance. He says, I can't, Mammy. And she says, yes, you can. She was still smiling through her open teeth. Just hold your head up high and um, my glass of Gialdi. And then it says, she was no use at maths homework and some days you could starve rather than get a hot meal from her. But Shuggy looked at her now and understood this was where she excelled. Mm. 
Every day with the makeup on and her hair done, she climbed out of her grave and held her head high. When she had disgraced herself with drink, she got up the next day, put on her best coat and faced the world. When her belly was empty and her weans were hungry, she did her hair and let the world think otherwise. I read that and I was like... (laughs) Uh, <laughs> I can't you know there's such love there oh there is there really is and Agnes was a fascinating character to write because she actually works on all these different levels she has such a feeling of dignity and self-worth and pride and yet on the inside she's uh, disintegrating and that causes trouble for her in the community because the other women see this inflated sense of worth and this regal nature that she has. And they want to know why she should have that because they understand she's suffering with addiction. And so they try and bring her down a peg or two. But Shuggy understands and she's teaching him how to, as we learn through the book, he's also other than queer and sort of isolated. And she's teaching him to reject that, you know, don't let the other people bring you down and and keep going. And so she, that is her real defining strength throughout the book, but it's also her weakness that's her Achilles heel. So you you mentioned about being othered. Um, you've re- you've spoke about feeling othered yourself. Hmm. Could you talk a bit about about that and and the effect that has on on one's mental health? I guess you were living alone, weren't you, from hmm. the age of sixteen? Mm-hmm. And a you know a, a gay boy in nineteen eighties, you know, where there was all these sort of toxic masculinity and hmm. all the rest of it. You talk about that struggle with being othered, yeah. but also in a way, what it, what has it given you now, if that makes sense? Totally. You know, one of the hardest things to write about the book was when you're writing about people in the 70s and 80s, but you're writing with a 2020 mindset was not to go back and judge how it was people behaved. And that was a hard thing to do uh, as a writer, but also as a person. I just wanted to put it on the page, Bryony, and say these things were happening. There was some misogyny, there was homophobia, and they were perfectly accepted within society in a way. Now, of course, we know better and we have more education, but I don't think it necessarily made people bad people. It was just this is was the acceptable way to treat people. And so Shuggy, very, at a very young age, and actually I was too, was just told he wasn't right. Mm. You know, Shuggy is effeminate, he's precocious, he's watchful and sensitive and uh, all of these things, but he's not a rough and tumble masculine boy. And he's actually told from within his family, people who love him very dearly, and then also in the community around him. And he has no sense of himself. He's just a child. He's five, six, seven years old. But his spirit is different, and therefore it doesn't fit into the narrow way that men were allowed to be. And that actually also hurts men, right? It hurts heterosexual men when we don't allow them to express themselves, talk about their feelings, or or have any sense of self-expression. So it's not just about one pocket of society doing it to the other. It's about how everybody was allowed to be. But that otherness is devastating for Shuggy because it places the hate that people feel for him or the the dislike they have for him inside himself, and it makes him hate himself. And so throughout the book, he spends his time trying to fix something that isn't broken, but that people let him believe is broken. Mm. And, you know, he does that through things like his brother teaches him to talk, walk like a man, how he carries himself when he comes into a room. Then he's given a sort of uh, outdated premiership football book of these old football scores that are meaningless to anybody 
than just about anybody, anybody other than someone who wants to talk down the pub with other men about who won the, the World Cup in 1966, if there even was a World Cup in 1966. I don't know, you're asking the wrong I think time. it was. I, think it was. I, I, <laughs> I was like, it's, a, it's an even number. That's a pretty safe bet. And I think England won, not that that will mean anything. <laughs> I should have known, I should have known. <laughs> That's the last time England won anything. Yeah, but, <laughs> but he goes through it like the rosary and it's, you know, he... He recounts over and over in the hope that it will change him. And so that's his isolation. And at the end of the, the book is an awful lot about the end of Agnes, but the start of Shuggy in a way. There is a transaction. There is a there is a conversation about how far do you go to save the person you love the most before you have to save yourself. And that's part of what all of Agnes's children go through. But Shuggy, towards the end of the book, finally has some actually the transformative power of female friendship, I think, because he has these really strong female friends in his life finally, but also he's starting to embrace self-love. Okay, so I want to know, Douglas, how did you embrace self-love? How did you come to realise that you were not broken? You were perfect just as you were. Because, I mean, you've had the most amazing, you you moved to America, you know, this isn't even your day job. Hello, (laughs) Mr. Booker Prize winning novelist. And you're actually, you're quite a successful fashion designer, aren't you? Yeah, I'm a fashion designer, although I don't know where my future of that um, lies now that I've won the Booker Who gives a shit? It doesn't matter, Douglas. <laughs> You've won the Booker Prize. Oh, thank you. How did you find that self-love? Because I read an interview with you where someone mentioned, oh, you know, do you, do you think you have PTSD from your upbringing? And you said, look, you know, PTSD is, is not a luxury that I had to explore when I was 16 years old and find myself living at home. So how did you find the strength to build yourself up and realise that you were enough and that you could do all of this? That's, I mean, such a big question. And I don't know that I've had, I don't know that I've analysed myself enough to answer it, but at 16, you know, I never knew my dad, Bryony, and at 16, my mum dies. And I have a very loving brother and sister, and they did everything they could for me. But I'm living by myself, and I'm the first kid in my family to finish high school uh, with any sort of accreditation to go on to higher education. But growing up in Thatcher's Glasgow, I, I couldn't put my faith in trades, and I couldn't put my faith in good, honest work because I'd seen what it had done to my uncles and to my brother and, and to that. And they just couldn't find enough work. And, and so I clung to education, even though I didn't know what was at the And no one could tell me. And that really sort of took me, I was actually funneled, I wanted to study English, but it was just seen as something like and boys like me shouldn't do or couldn't do. But also my education was in tatters, to be totally honest, between my mother's addiction, between the bullying I got for being queer, mm. and just between, you know, this is not a single story, a, a sad story about one person. So many kids were coming to school and weren't having a lot of their needs met, you know, people were having a rough time and and good people at that. And so... After my mother dies, I'm just on my own. And so I just couldn't stop, Brian. I couldn't. There was no reverse gear. There was no home to go home to at Christmas. There was nothing. And so I just kind of, out of fear, I think, to be honest, fear of of not surviving, I kind of tossed it into first gear and just went and like went gunning. And it's funny that it ends up in textiles that goes to fashion at the Royal College of Art that brings me to New York. But really only in my 30s do I reach a place where I can reflect because the rest of the time was just about not being hungry, being homeless, whatever it is, it was just about moving forward. And so I can't say that I had a strategy, it's just I was relentless. There was no, there was nowhere to turn back to.
you've spoken about books being a, a sort of a savior for you in a way, but they weren't something you really discovered until you were about 16. And books are, I think you spoke about it when you were at the Hay Festival, the Digital Hay Festival, and you were saying how, you know, as a child to get lost in a book and to go to that place and have peace. Um, that That is a luxury, you know, mm-hmm. and it isn't one that you knew about. Could you talk about how you got into books and and how they they helped you? Totally. You know, this wasn't really anything I reflected on until I became a writer, until I won the Booker. But I did, I grew up in a house without books and that wasn't unusual for the time of the place. And I don't want to place any judgment on that, Bryony, because none of my friends had books. You know, our mothers weren't big readers, so they just weren't part of our life. Obviously, we read in school, there was a local library, but they weren't things that uh, really factored for us. And that was fine. We used our imaginations and our abilities in different ways. But I didn't have the peace inside myself to be able to read it anyway or to sit down and concentrate. And I think we overlook how much of a luxury that is for a lot of kids. You need an enormous amount of peace inside yourself and then also in your environment, free from concern about food or what's happening with your parents or what's happening in the neighborhood, to be able to sit down and concentrate on a book. And some kids just don't have it. And and that's, you know, that's a sad thing, I think. But that's also not to be looked down upon. And so after my mum dies and I'm living by myself, and also, to be honest, school empties out. Of the 350 kids that start in first year, I think only 12 of us went on to the end of school, which is also totally fine. And people had to go out and make a living and attend to their lives. But, you know, in fifth and sixth year, there's nobody there. And and so finally, I can read a book and I can concentrate on a book. And I had two really amazing English teachers who just started to feed me literature. And it was too late for me to go and study it, but it was transformative to me and gave me the lifelong passion for reading. And what it did for me, people say that books let you travel or let you see things, but suddenly it was possibilities for me. I suddenly just understood the world and understood there was other stories and people living different lives to my own. Because one of the things about kids is they're remarkable. They only know the thing that they have, and especially Mm. when you're in poverty. It's not like you get to lift your head up so much and look around and see other parts of the world you just deal with what's in front of you and you might only know the few streets of the house and scheme that you're on and and so books for me just let me see that there was other lives uh living but I never actually got to read queer books or Scottish books until I was in my 20s and that was just what the curriculum was in school you know you were reading the classics and a lot of English middle-class authors. Mm-hmm. So what were the books that in your 20s, the sort of queer and the, and the Scottish books that, you, you know, really kind of lit you up? Oh, so many. I think first amongst them, I adore uh, Morvan Caller by Alan Warner, mm-hmm. uh, which was an amazing book just set uh, in a port town in the west of Scotland. And it's about hopes and about escaping where you are. James Kelman, How Late It Was, How Late, was really pivotal for me. Which was the other Scottish Booker one? And yeah. that gave you a because I read I read you wrote a fantastic piece about the Scottish books that you love and saying how to to see a book like that win the Booker Prize. Mm-hmm. You know, because often if you don't, I mean, this is why representation is so important and diversity is so important because if you don't see yourself represented, you don't you don't think that you matter, right? That's exactly it. And you don't know that you exist even. And uh, definitely growing up in the 70s and the 80s, everything was focused in the South and media was all about sort of the English middle class experience. And you didn't ever see these regional voices celebrated. And so that was pivotal for me. What also damaged was the backlash that came from it from within some of the publishing communities where there were people that were opposed to James Kelman's win. And 
it's great to see how much culture has moved on between James and myself to see Shuggy, which is a book set in a similar milieu to James's world. But there has been a huge shift. But, you know, it's important to see yourself on the page and it's important to see your life treated with dignity and urgency and 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 care. And and that was when I discovered all of this, but also queer voices, Alan Hollinghurst, James Baldwin, all of these um, queer love stories do, even Armistead Maupin, you know, mm. uh, growing up queer, your entire sense of family or the people that are your family or the people mm. who live in the houses next to you. And suddenly Tales of the City shows you that you can make your own family and you can discover people on the other side of the world. And just that click in my mind was was really pivotal. It is, reading is just... I grew up very much thinking, because I didn't, for various chaotic reasons, didn't really read much as a child, do you know what I mean? And hmm. I've always felt kind of stupid <laughs> because of that. And, me too. And, yeah. and now I, certainly since I got sober, reading for me now is a, it's sort of my therapy, you know, it's sort of, as you say, it's peace. And it's that moment where you can sort of escape and go to these other worlds and I guess it stands for something more, doesn't it? It stands for the, you've managed to get to that place in your life where you can make space for it. You know, you can make space for these other places. Totally. And I think it also reminds you of your own place in the universe. Reading for me, when it is a book that does this, it heightens my sense of empathy and of life's lived because you really, if it's done well, then you consider the characters, what made them, what influences them, how they're going through the world. And it then reflects on me and makes me think about my own life. And I find very little other media does that. Like movies don't maybe do it as much because you can't really absorb the characters the way you can through a book. And so reading for me is about connection and connecting with people that I might never meet. Do you feel that's even more important right now when we can't meet anybody? (laughs) (laughs) I think so. And I think also it's like a private conversation in a way. It's in your head and it's just so intimate reading. And right now we need that connection. Yeah, we do need that connection. I wondered if I could ask you a bit about, I don't want to sort of get into politics or anything like that, because we we, <laughs> we have enough of that on a daily basis at the moment. But I was thinking about how it's the year, I was going to say it's the year 2020, and it's not. It's the year 2021. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it, extended play I'm, of 2020. I'm like, what year is it? I don't know. What's my name? Like, hey, so I guess what I wanted to get at was that so many of the things you had to deal with growing up, mm-hmm. I find it quite frightening that in the year 2021, a lot of it's coming back, mm-hmm. you know. And I wondered if poverty and, it, you know, it being a trap and when you see, for example, the the scandal over the free school meals, it's mm-hmm. taken a premiership footballer to hold the government accountable on that. And I suppose we also have a situation at the moment where, Lots of kids are just not in school, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and you have middle class parents like myself going, oh, homeschooling is a nightmare without realising that out there there is there is darkness. You know, there is people are having to they're having to survive, you know, forget about homeschooling, forget about getting the algebra done or the long division done. It's like it's, you know, it's back to sort of complete basics. And I wondered what that brings up in you. Is there a message? I mean, I guess it's unlikely that seven-year-olds are going to be listening to this podcast, but (laughs) do you know what I mean? Anyone who feels right now bleak and like they are just surviving on a daily basis and that it's very hard to get anything else done and to make space for the things that they would, the luxuries that they would love to make space for in an ideal world. I guess, is there anything you would say to them to keep them going, if that makes sense? 
Yeah, I don't know that I have anything so profound to say about that, meaning like words of encouragement, because I think life, sometimes it is enough to get up and just face the next day that's coming. And that's certainly what Shuggy and Agnes go through. You know, sometimes in literature, we see hope as a very bright sunrise, but actually sometimes the bravest part of hope is just the courage and the strength to get up and hope that tomorrow's a little bit better than today. And that can be enough. If that's what you're living through just now, uh, reward yourself for that because you are you are doing it and that is enough. When I wrote Shuggy Bain, I thought I was writing about a very specific time and a place and almost that it would be historical fiction. Mm. I couldn't imagine, Bryony, that it would come into a world that was still suffering from a lot of the issues that are in the book. And I was a kid that grew up surviving, dependent on free school meals. And I bore the stigma around that. You know, there was a lot of bullying and mocking around that. But honestly, there have been days I might not have eaten if I hadn't had that meal. And I was so grateful for it. It's crazy that we're in a world now where that's a, that's a decision that the government even thinks they have to make. And the truth is, is, you know, when I grew up, there was such a social fabric and we didn't have anything, but at least the people who had a lot of things didn't have so much more. Mm. And I was, we were always sort of caught by the fabric. And I think the fabric's eroding. I think we're moving to a point where we expect people to fend for themselves and not everyone can. That's what society means. You know, we are, we all come in different stratas and levels and we have to look out for one another. It's really important. We're not in this alone. Nobody goes through life alone. And so that is like really, really important. And I wrote in Shuggy Bain about free school meals, which is the craziest thing and how important they are to Shuggy and Agnes have a fight about it because Shuggy is being bullied and having the tickets taken off of them. It's a pivotal moment for Agnes where she suddenly goes, oh my God, you haven't eaten today. And she realizes because she hasn't fed them and she realizes and, and so we have to care for one another because there will be kids going through desperate times right now. I also think one of the things that helped me cope, and I don't know how kids today do it, Bryony, is at least when I was growing up, I only knew the streets that were on and I lived on. And and so I had the feeling that everyone was going through the same thing and we were all the same people. And there was a huge amount of love and solidarity in that. I don't know how kids today might feel isolated if they can see social media and people doing all right and things on the news where there's such polarization within society and some people are flourishing and doing or worrying about different things and you can see that now as a kid and that must be an emotionally isolating place and so I think you know school dinners are not just about the caring we do to the physical body of a child Mm. making sure they're okay we have to also show that we care and that they are worth something Mm. And that's what the conversation really is about as well. That as a society, we don't, we think these children need school dinners are worth something. And of course they are. Mm. You've seen, there was a debate on BBC One. It was between a 38-year-old mother with terminal cancer and some lord. And he said to her, I'm not saying your life has no value, but it has less value, right? And that to me, I know it's a sort of different thing, but it's like we are in this weird, horrible situation now where we're sort of placing values on human lives, be it through age, illness, but, you know, but also 
through i suppose kind of class and poverty and yeah. it's it's just awful it, i feel there is a real lack of empathy generally yeah. in society at the moment which is obviously i think i feel has been worsened by this pandemic i'm just saying this to you i'm not particularly asking you a question <laughs> well i think you're right that it's worsening i think it's always been there i think for some reason it's articulating itself in this moment where we're all getting to see it i think we've always as a society whether we say it out loud we we have always, certainly in the UK, placed different rankings on the value of people. And that's what poverty and class means. That's what an imperialistic class system is. You know, we all, we, that's hardwired into us. And we all, whether we express it or not, or whether we're suffering from it or not, it's just always there. Mm. I think just now it's the fact that we're verbalizing it so outwardly and we're, we're sending signals every single day. And that's what the school meals thing is about as well. It's about like, what are we telling these kids that they don't matter in our society or they matter less? Or, and that's the crime of it. Mm. I think it's a crime. God. Well, sorry. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> thank you. No, 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 you haven't brought me down as well. I, I think you're, I think you're brilliant. I can, I want to talk about winning the Booker Prize. Hmm. So you're at home with your husband in New York and it's obviously all done by like video link up and it's got a guest list. Well, I, I guess, whoever can watch it but but very specifically mm. Barack Obama is watching <laughs> no pressure yeah <laughs> and you've spoken about in an interview I think it was with the independent about like doing the dress rehearsal and hearing someone on stage at the old Vic reading out yeah a bit of shuggy and you saying that this is just the most amazing moment of your life and emotional and can you just talk us through what that was like that evening for you Oh, it was, I mean, I was aware that it was going to win or lose. It was going to be one of the biggest moments of my life. I couldn't believe that my debut novel had made the Booker, the Booker shortlist. And, you know, it was a weird disembodying year anyway, where we all feel not quite connected as a whole person. And so I'd spent the months before it reading everyone else on the long list and the shortlist, because I just wanted to be present. It was such a momentous moment for me that I wanted to feel it and just feel it as real as I possibly could. And and so actually, when we went into the, the dress rehearsal and then into the event, I was thinking about the other writers because they were phenomenal. And you should read all of their books. They're so diverse and so many great voices from all different parts of the world. But I was thinking about them and I was thinking about how incredible they are. And then they did the actors reading and <laughs> they got this guy, Stuart Campbell from Bells Hill, who's just I see him actually as leak in the book. And he read, he just sat up and he and he read this thing from Shuggy. And I just started crying. And I'm thinking, oh my God, there's a world leader probably watching this and, and all this other stuff. And everyone else is beaming out from their home. And I just thought <laughs> this really moved me very deeply. I just, I couldn't help it. And then when they announced that I'm winning, I'm still thinking about everyone else. And so when they announced I'm winning, I just, my mind just leaves my body and I don't even know how I got through it. But it's funny, it took about six weeks for it to filter in because no one, I couldn't hug anybody. I haven't seen my friends or family. I couldn't, you know, I wasn't around other people other than my husband. And your husband can tell you and people through the screen can tell you, but it doesn't feel quite real. Mm. And so it was only till about Christmas when I managed to have a minute to reflect. And I thought, oh my God, what just happened? What does it mean to you? What does it in your soul mean to you that this book has won the Booker Prize, this book that is dedicated to your mother, yeah. what does that feel like? Or do you still not know? I, I honestly can't express it. I, like, I'd like to separate what it means to me as a writer and a career and just talk about what it means to me as an eight-year-old boy, I think. And I think it, it, it erases so many feelings of inferiority I've carried with me 
throughout my life. And some of that's class and some of that's about what right did I have to see myself in literature? Cause I never saw myself in literature. Mm. And for a minute, that just makes me feel incredibly valid. And hopefully it makes people that understand Agnes and Jinty and Eugene and, and know a little shuggy also feel seen in that way. But I had written from a place of trauma and personal loss and to take trauma and to turn it into a book or into any art for anybody, I think is one of the best things you can do, especially when you're a man and maybe nobody's asked you about your feelings throughout your life or to express yourself, especially men from the West Coast of Scotland. And so making a piece of art, Bryony, was was about the best I could do with the hurt that was inside me. And so to see that recognized is wonderful, but it also makes me feel wonderful for my mother and for all the women like my mother that lost their struggle with addiction because mm. it was never that they were voiceless because these are fierce women you know I wouldn't ever want to get into a, a slanging match with them because they were they were strong women but it was that society doesn't like to listen and we never did and so we asked them to keep their shame and their their poverty and their addiction at home and and so to win the bookers hugely it's just huge for my soul I think mm, sorry <laughs> you're making me cry. No, you made me cry. This could just be the Bryony and Douglas podcast where we cry. <laughs> well, but I reading it just I don't know. There's just so much love in it. So much love in it. And I without I don't want to like spoiler alert it or whatever that awful phrase is. Spoiler alert. But yeah, even at the end when he's with his friend and she's watching the same thing happen to her mother, you know, and but there's this yeah, you're right. It's the hope. And that some days it is just about, for so many people, just surviving and just getting through and getting up and getting out of the house, you know. If that's all you can manage, that's incredibly courageous. Just keep doing yeah. that, right? That's that's it. It's like the humbleness of hope in the book. I don't think the hope needs to be this huge shouty thing. I think sometimes it's a courageous act just to keep going and please keep going. Please, please. Keep going after you've, you know, like Agnes does after she's disgraced herself with drink. She puts her makeup on and she gets up and she does it. And um, I think that was, there's just, I don't know. Like I, I, I think the thing that's touched me and moved me about this book is just the amount of love and compassion and empathy in it. And I, I just want to thank you for it because, it, it, you know, it certainly reached out to this alcoholic mother. <laughs> um and I, uh, well, we know it's resonated with so many people on so many different levels. And even if you don't have anything in common with any of the characters in the book, it's just a, it's just, well, the quote on the front of it is a novel of rare and lasting beauty. That's from the <laughs> Observer. It's fantastic. It's special. And, and so are you. What, what next, Douglas? <laughs> what uh, next? When's uh, the next book coming? <laughs> you know, top of my list is please soon let me get home to Scotland. Okay. And let me see my family. That's, that's like the only thing I actually want at the moment. I still haven't seen my book in a Scottish bookstore or a British bookstore. And that's just the weirdness of 2020. Like I have. I've seen it in a lot of bookstores in, well, in London. I can't say for Scotland, but if anyone listening, send your pictures of you with your copies of Shuggy Bane in Scotland in front of Scottish landmarks. Oh, you'll destroy me. Don't, don't, because I'll, I'll be in a puddle and I'll get nothing done. Uh, it's almost too, it's so just a simple thing like that. But I'm wrapping up my second novel. We're hoping that it'll be with you in 2022. Again, I want to. I'm just writing about love. We leave Shuggy on the brink of manhood, and he has so many unanswered questions. I think, and I wanted it to be that way for the reader because, as a reader myself, I love books that give me the gift of the characters and and say these are now yours. They're your 
they're your care and your concern and your friends. And and I wanted the reader to be left thinking about sort of intergenerational poverty and, and what were Shuggy's hopes for the future. But it left me as a writer with a desire to go back and look at young men, totally different young men growing up queer in Glasgow and, and how are they going to make it? So I've written this love story between two young men who are separated by territorial sectarian lines, but all they want is to be in love. That's all anyone wants, isn't it? That's all anyone wants, yeah. That's that's all anyone wants. I'm a bit in love with you, Douglas. (laughs) I'm in love with you, Bridie. So, (laughs) you know, this will be the point everyone turns off. They're like, (laughs) no, I um, thank you so, so much for taking the time out to come and chat to me. Like, just thank you for saying yes to my, my little. Sweet query. I, I, when you replied and were like, yes, I, I, I'd love to. I did a little, I went, <laughs> I was running with a friend, my, my friend Emma, and I said, he said he'll do it. And she was like, yay. <laughs> I, I just, I think you're fantastic. And you, and in so many ways, this is a tale of hope, but your story is also. <sighs> a tale of hope and survival. And I really hope that people listening today will, it's that thing you, you said, which is just hold on, hold mm-hmm. on, keep going. You know, even when it feels like you can't, you never know when the miracle's going to happen, do you? You never know when you're going to turn the corner and, never know. and Barack Obama's going to be waiting for you, <laughs> as you as you wait to hear if you've won the Booker Prize. That's mental, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's wonderful. It's I just, wonderful. It's just wonderful. Thank you for joining us from New York and um, thank you for being you. And I can't wait to read number two. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Bryony. This has been the best part of the day. Thank you. Before you go, please follow Mad World on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review. I love to read what you think about the shows and also see your guest suggestions. Mad World is all about helping our listeners and I love hearing from you. The Telegraph also let me loose in column form. So if you'd like to hear even more from me, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld and you can get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300 123 That's 0300 123 They're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. There's also Young Minds who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. If you prefer tech support, Shout is a 24-7 UK crisis tech service available for times when people feel they need immediate support. By texting Shout to 85258, you will be put in touch with a trained crisis volunteer who will chat to you via text. And importantly, please remember this. You are not alone. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 